to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. As we close in on Halloween, Karen and I decided we would try to be extra scary. Is it possible? For our 32nd episode, I begin the first week of October with the stolen liver. This comes to us from Poland. The source is Otto Nuk, dated 1909. And now for our story. In the village of Hammer near Kazenikoo, many years ago there lived a young married couple. The wife loved to eat liver and could not live if she didn't eat a liver every day. One day she sent her husband once again to town to fetch a liver. However, in Kazenikoo, the husband met a group of young merrymakers and went with them to a tavern where he drank away all his money. Sad and without a liver, he made his way homeward. It was late. On his way, he had to go through a great forest. Here he met a hunter who asked him why he was so sad. The man told him everything, upon which the hunter said, In the middle of the forest there is a clearing with a gallow, upon which a number of dead bodies are hanging. Take one of them down, cut out his liver, and give it to your wife. Tell her it is thief liver. The man did just that. When he arrived home, his wife was first angry because he had been away so long, but she calmed down as soon as she saw the liver and began frying it. The man lay down and went to sleep. Suddenly, a white figure appeared at the window and it cried into the room. Everyone is asleep. The dogs are keeping watch in the yard and you are standing there frying my liver. The man was terrified and in his fear cried out to his wife that she should come to bed. But the wife wanted first to dip a little piece of bread into the gravy and taste it. Meanwhile, the phantom, a white skeleton, had already entered the house. 
always calling out the same words again and again. The woman, who was not afraid, but asked the ghost, Now, my little fellow, what happened to your flesh? The ghost replied, The ravens ate it, and the wind blew it away. Then the woman asked, Now, my little fellow, what happened to your eyes and ears? And the ghost answered, The ravens ate them, and the wind blew it away. The woman asked, Now, my little fellow, what happened to your liver? Then the ghost cried out, You have it! And with that he seized the woman and strangled her to death. The End Who is this woman? Mia Farrow's character from Rosemary's Baby? So wait, wait. So instead of facing her, this man would rather carve up a dead body for a liver, a human liver, than face his wife with nothing. (sighs) That is disturbing on more levels than I have time to even discuss. How about the line, she calms down as soon as she sees the liver. Again, I ask you, who is this woman? A liver junkie? Or what about the part when she says, now, my little fellow, the chutzpah on this liver addict. She keeps calling the phantom little fellow after each horrible answer it gives her. What? Is this phantom short? I don't get it. But those were sure the last questions she ever asked. Phantoms can choke people? As promised, now for even darker. The Country Where Death Is Not There was a man with his mother. The mother was much afraid of dying. Therefore, she wished to go into a country where there is no death. The son said, Where is a country without death? She answered, Well, there is such a country. Bring me there. The woman was very old. So they traveled into a very, very distant country to reach the country where there is no death. They turned into a village and asked for water. When it was given to them, the son asked, Is there death in this country? People answered, Dear me, where do you come from that you ask such a question concerning death? He answered, My mother is afraid of dying, so she wants a country where death is not. The people said, Why, go away. They went and turned to another village. There they asked again and received the answer, Why? What kind of man are you that you ask about dying? Go away. There is death here. Then they went to a very distant country and asked, How is your country? Is there death in it? The answer was, No, people do not die here. The mother was very glad. She said, Well done, my son. You have brought me to a country where there is no death. Her son had a friend in that town, and to his home he brought his mother. He said, Here is my mother. Let her live with you. I shall go to our country, and after three years, 
I shall return to see you and my mother. His mother was satisfied. So the boy returned to his native country and stayed there for some time. But his mother became sick. She got a headache. She said, friend of my son, I have a headache. On that boy arose and called the people together. The people came and sat down. The boy said, I have called you because of the mother of my friend who is here. Now collect money that we may give it to her son when he returns. For she has her head in aching and because of her sickness, her meat will spoil. For that reason, he said, she must be killed at once. When the woman heard this, she began crying. I am not sick. I have no headache. But the people said, never mind, seize her or her flesh will be spoiled. So she was caught, brought, thrown on the ground and killed. Her flesh was divided among the people and they ate it. The next day they collected money and brought it to the friend of her son. And her son came back. He sat down. They gave him food and he ate. He asked, where's my mother? His friend answered, my friend, your mother was seized with sickness, so we collected money. Here is the money and killed her. Least her meat should be spoiled, for as for us, we do not die in our country. If a man is seized with sickness, we kill him. The boy replied, why should I sell my mother? Never. Then he said, I will go. His friend said, are you angry? He replied, no. I'm not angry. In the meantime, the people came and wanted to eat the boy too. His friend therefore went to him saying, Go, or you also will be eaten like your mother. He accompanied him into a distant country. When the boy came home, he said to his people, My mother has been eaten by a lion. That is all. And the people said, Your mother is a sinful woman. And is not death in all the world? And should there be a place where there is no death? The end. This tale is from Sudan, which is in northeastern Africa. The first thing that struck me was the mother sure found a way to keep her son close to her and busy. So I must say I was a bit surprised when he dumped her at his friend's house for three years. The moral of this story, don't complain about poor health around people. <laughs> so like a cult, if you can get on board with the basic principle, well, okay. But these guys want to eat the son as soon as he returns to find out about his mother after three years. That kind of weakened the whole no one dies because we eat them before illness kills them. Uh, no, 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 no. You are serial killer cannibals. I uncovered some surprising facts about cannibalism. Prepare yourself. The Soviet Union took part in cannibalism during the Stalin-imposed famine that became so bad in the Ukraine that cannibalism became prevalent. To combat it, the state set up an anti-cannibalism squad. There's a Halloween outfit for you. 
hundreds were accused of eating their neighbors or family. Glad to report that studies have shown humans are hardwired against cannibalism. That's against cannibalism, though not always. Yikes. Did you know that eating the brain of another human can cause kuru? It's a brain disease, similar to mad cow. Kuru occurs because our brains contain prions that transmit the disease. Symptoms begin with trembling and end with death. So then why didn't the famous four people of Papua New Guinea, known for cannibalism, get this disease of Kuru? Up until the late 1950s, the four people ate the bodies of their relatives to cleanse their spirits. In their language, four means shaking. So it seems that some of them did get Kuru, but not all. Over the last 200 years, some of the tribe have developed a genetic mutation that protects them against the prions that transmit Kuru. The Tupi people of Brazil in the 1500s would keep their captives for years before they were eaten. Isn't that lovely? In 2013, archaeologists found evidence of cannibalism in colonial Jamestown. Hey, least we forget the infamous Donner Party. Remember, they got lost during the winter of 1846 in the snowy Sierra Nevada mountains? More than 300 newspaper articles about the Donner Party were printed in 1847, most saying, the party only resorted to cannibalism after eating boiled animal bones, hides, and even a beloved dog, Uno. No, not Uno. I also say that for the card game. To my absolute horror, I found that cannibalism was sometimes used as a medical treatment. What? This is when I wish I had that needle scratch on the record sound to play. Here is one example. In Germany, from the 1600s through the 1800s, executioners often had a bizarre side hustle of selling leftover body parts Mm -hmm. as medicine. Okay, question. What wasn't left over? Human fat was a remedy for broken bones, sprains, and arthritis. It was rubbed as a balm, not eaten, but still. Apothecaries regularly stocked fat, flesh, and bone. There are examples of a human skull being ground down to powder and mixed with liquid for epilepsy. Current times, remember the fad of eating placenta? Isn't that a form of cannibalism? And now... 
for our weekly installment of Pinocchio. Chapter 24 Pinocchio, spurred on by the hope of finding his father and of being in time to save him, swam all night long. And what a horrible night it was. It poured rain, it hailed, it thundered, and the lightning was so bright that it turned the night into day. At dawn, he saw, not far away from him, a long stretch of sand. It was an island in the middle of the sea. Pinocchio tried his best to get there, but he couldn't. The waves played with him and tossed him about as if he were a twig or a bit of straw. At last, and luckily for him, a tremendous wave tossed him to the very spot where he wanted to be. The blow from the wave was so strong that as he fell to the ground, his joints cracked and almost broke. But nothing daunted, he jumped to his feet and cried, Once more, I have escaped with my life. Little by little, the sky cleared. The sun came out in full splendor and the sea became as calm as a lake. Then the marionette took off his clothes and laid them on the sand to dry. He looked over the waters to see whether he might catch the side of a boat with a little man in it. He searched and he searched, but he saw nothing except sea and sky and far away a few sails, so small they could have been birds. If only I knew the name of this island, he said to himself. If I even knew what kind of people I would find here, but whom shall I ask? There's no one here. The idea of finding himself in so lonesome a spot made him so sad he was about to cry. But just then he saw a big fish swimming nearby with his head far out of the water. Not knowing what to call him, the marionette said to him, Hey there, Mr. Fish, may I have a word with you? Even two, if you want, answered the fish, who happened to be a very polite dolphin. Will you please tell me if on this island there are places where one may eat without necessarily being eaten? Surely there are, answered the dolphin. In fact, you'll find one not far from this spot. And how shall I get there? Take the path to your left and follow your nose. You can't go wrong. Tell me another thing. Would you who travel night and day through the sea, did you perhaps meet a little boat with my father in it? And who is your father? He's the best man in the world, even as I am the worst son that can be found. In the storm last night, answered the dolphin, that little boat must have been swamped. And my father, by that time, he must have been swallowed by the terrible shark, which for the last few days has been bringing terror to these waters. Is this shark very big? Asked Pinocchio, who was beginning to tremble with fright. Is he big? Replied the dolphin. Just to give you an idea of his size, let me tell you that he's larger than a five-story building and that he has a mouth so big and so deep that a whole train and engine could easily get into it. Mother mine, cried the marionette, scared to death and dressing himself as fast as he could. He turned to the dolphin and said, farewell, Mr. Fish. Pardon the bother and thanks for your kindness. This said, he took the path at so swift a gait that he seemed to fly 
and in a very small sound he heard, he turned in fear to see whether the terrible shark, five stories high and with a train in his mouth, was following him. After walking half an hour, he came to a small country called the Land of Busy Bees. The streets were filled with people running to and fro about their tasks. Everyone worked. Everyone had something to do. Even if one were to search with a ladder, no idle man or one tramp could have been found. I understand, said Pinocchio at once wearily. This is no place for me. I was not born to work. But in the meantime, he began to feel hungry, for it was 24 hours since he'd eaten. What was to be done? There were only two means left to him by which to get in order a bite to eat. He had to either work or beg. He was ashamed to beg because his father had always preached to him that begging should be done only by the sick or old. He said that the real poor in the world, deserving of our pity and help, were only those who either through age or sickness had lost the means of earning their bread with their own hands. All others should work, and if they didn't and went hungry, so much the worse for them. Just then, a man passed by, worn out and wet with perspiration, pulling with difficulty two heavy carts filled with coal. Pinocchio looked at him and, judging by his looks to be a kind man, said to him with eyes downcast in shame, Will you be so good as to give me a penny, for I am faint with hunger? Not only a penny, answered the coal man. I'll give you four if you'll help me pull these two wagons. I'm surprised, answered the marionette, very much offended. I wish you to know that I've never been a donkey nor ever, ever pulled a wagon. So much for you, answered the coal man. Then, my boy, if you were really faint with hunger, eat two slices of your pride, and I hope they don't give you indigestion. A few minutes later, a bricklayer passed by, carrying a pail full of plaster on his shoulders. Good man, would you be kind enough to give a penny to a poor boy who is yawning from hunger? Gladly, answered the bricklayer. Come with me, and I'll carry some plaster, and instead of one penny, I'll give you five. But the plaster's heavy, answered Pinocchio, and the work too hard for me. If the work's too hard for you, my boy, enjoy your yawns, and may they bring you luck. In less than a half hour, at least 20 people passed, and Pinocchio begged each one of them, but they all answered, Aren't you ashamed? Instead of being a beggar in the streets, why don't you look for work and earn your own bread? Finally, a little woman went by carrying two water jugs. Good woman, will you allow me to have a drink from one of your jugs? Asked Pinocchio, who was burning up with first. With pleasure, my dear boy, she answered, setting two jugs on the ground before him. When Pinocchio had his fill, he grumbled as he wiped his mouth. My thirst is gone. If only I could as easily get rid of my hunger. On hearing these words, the good little woman immediately said, If you help me to carry these jugs home, I'll give you a slice of bread. Pinocchio looked at the jug and said neither yes nor no. And with the bread, I'll give you a nice dish of cauliflower with white sauce on it. Pinocchio gave the jug another look and neither yes nor no. And after the cauliflower, 
some cake and jam. At this last bribery, Pinocchio could no longer resist and said firmly, well, I'll take the jug home for you. The jug was very heavy, and the marionette, not being strong enough to carry it with his hands, had to put it on his head. When they arrived home, the little woman made Pinocchio sit down at a small table and placed before him the bread, the cauliflower, and the cake. Pinocchio did not eat. He devoured. His stomach seemed a bottomless pit. His hunger finally appeased. He raised his head to thank his kind benefactors. But he had not looked at her long when he gave a cry of surprise and sat there with his eyes wide open his fork in the air, his mouth filled with bread and cauliflower. Why all this surprise? asked the good woman, laughing. Because, answered Pinocchio, stammering and stuttering, because you look like you, you remind me of, yes, yes, the same voice, same eyes, the same hair, yes, yes, yes. You also have the same azure hair she had. Oh, my little fairy, my little fairy, tell me that it's you. Don't make me cry any longer. If you only knew, I've cried so much. I've suffered so. And Pinocchio threw himself on the floor and clasped the knees of the mysterious little woman. All right, here we are, chapter 24. Okay, so this friendly dolphin tells Pinocchio about this shark that's five stories high and has a train tunnel mouth. And you notice Pinocchio no longer asks about his father. He's just interested in finding some food. Just he who shall not be named anymore. (laughs) How about the line, I was not born for work. Okay. And we have a busy bee commune. And can you believe how many people Pinocchio asks, he begs from? That was really interesting, Geppetto's credo about anyone who doesn't have food, if they're elderly or they're unable to work for it themselves, they should be helped. But if not, how about eat two slices of your own pride? Hey, Pinocchio, want a little cheese with that wine? Oh, my God, did he whine enough when he found the Azure Fairy again? So the Azure Fairy is hiding in a busy bee commune. Now for our new segment, Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. In Greek mythology, Pandora, derived from the all-endowed, all-gifted, or all-giving, was the first human woman created by Hephaestus on the instructions of Zeus. Her other name, inscribed against her figure on a white ground Kelix in the British Museum, is Anisadora, ancient Greek for she who sends up gifts, up implying from below, within the earth. Greek mythology alludes that men and women were not created at the same time. Men existed before the coming of women and degenerated over the ages. And the creation of the first woman, Pandora, was not a gift by the gods to man, but a punishment. 
As the myths in Hesoid's works are not arranged entirely in chronological order, it is difficult to pin down in which age of mankind Pandora was created. The story of Pandora, however, is intricately linked with that of the Titan Prometheus, whose tale begins at Mekon and may perhaps be placed sometime after the Silver Age. It was at this place that Prometheus cut up an ox and divided it into two portions. The smaller portion contained the meat of the animal wrapped up in the ox's stomach, while the larger one had the animal's bones covered by a layer of glistening fat. Prometheus succeeded in tricking the gods as they chose the bigger portion, while mankind was left with the edible meat. Enraged by Prometheus's trickery, Zeus withheld fire from man so that they could not cook the meat. This prompted Prometheus to steal fire from the gods, resulting in his punishment by being bound in chains and having an eagle eat his liver, which would grow back in the night. Prometheus was eventually freed by the hero Hercules. Zeus was not content with punishing Prometheus alone, but decided to punish mankind as well. He commands Hephaestus to fashion a maiden out of earth and water, the first woman, a beautiful evil whose descendants would torment the human race. The gods then showered her with gifts. Hesoid explains upon her origin in his text, Works and Days, Athena taught her needlework and weaving. Aphrodite shed grace upon her head and cruel longing and cares that weary the limbs. Hermes gave her a shameless mind and a deceitful nature. Hermes also gave her the power of speech, putting in her lies and crafty words. Athena then clothed her and next persuasion and the charities adorned her with necklaces and other finery. The Jorge adorned her with a garland crown. Finally, Hermes gave this woman the name Pandora. She was indeed a sight to behold, though a dangerous one. Both immortal gods and mortal men were seized with wonder and desire when gazing upon her. The female sex is descended from her. Pandora was then sent by Hermes to Epimetheus, the brother of Prometheus, as a gift. Although Prometheus had warned his brother not to accept any gift from Zeus, Epimetheus had forgotten about the warning and took Pandora as his wife. Zeus, pleased that his trap was working, gave Pandora a wedding gift of a beautiful container. In Hesoid's original version, the gift was actually a pithos, or jar. The mistranslation of pithos, a large storage jar as box, is usually attributed to the 16th century humanist Erasmus of Rotterdam when he translated Hesoid's tale of Pandora into Latin. Hesoid's pithos refers to a large storage jar, often half buried in the ground, used for wine, oil, or grain. It can also refer to a funerary jar. Erasmus, however, translated pithos into the Latin word pisix, meaning box. The phrase, Pandora's box, has endured ever since. There was just one very important condition to Pandora owning the vessel. She was forbidden from opening the jar. But Pandora was gifted with curiosity as much as the other attributes given to her by the gods, and her mind became consumed with thoughts about what was kept inside. She could not understand why Zeus would give her a wedding gift but not allow her to see it. Eventually, she could think of nothing else but opening the box and unlocking its secrets. 
which is exactly what Zeus had planned. When Epimetheus left the room, Pandora slowly opened the lid off the box. Out poured a stream of ghostly creatures that consisted of disease, poverty, misery, sadness, death, and all the evils of the world. Pandora slammed the lid shut, but it was too late. The whole content had escaped except for one small but important thing that lay at the bottom, hope. In some versions of the myth, Pandora is said to have released hope and it fluttered from the box, touching the wounds created by the evil she had unleashed. Other variations of the myth say that hope remained inside the box, separating it from the evils and making it good in comparison. Even today, hope still remains in humanity in the darkest of times. As the British poet Alexander Pope once famously wrote, hope springs eternal in the human breast. In her later role as the source of all evil in the world, strong parallels can be drawn between Pandora and Eve in the Christian book of Genesis. Each were the first women in the world, and each played a major role in the world's transition from a place of ease and bountiful life to one of suffering and death. In both stories, the transition in the world is brought on as a revenge for a transgression against divine law. Both women were given one prohibition to maintain their idyllic lives, and both were drawn to violate the prohibition, bringing evil and suffering into the world and ending the paradise they lived in, not only for themselves, but for all mankind. However, one major difference remains. Eve was created by God to help Adam, whereas Pandora was created as a punishment from the gods. Some believe that the stories of Eve and Pandora have been retold over the centuries to more closely resemble each other, and this may be why they seem so similar in the present day. The End First woman was made as punishment to man? Oh, dear. So, does it mean that the battle of the sexes or sexist, is that all at a cellular level? It was interesting to me about the gifts being given to her. It reminded me of Sleeping Beauty a bit. And then we have Prometheus, soon to be Pandora's husband. I wonder what that marriage was like. But he steals fire from the gods and his punishment, Zeus and his punishments. Wow. An eagle eats his liver every day and then the liver grows back to, oh, that's a nightmare. Okay, I'm listening, and Karen says, the gods bestow gifts on Pandora. And I think, oh, it's going to be good things. But no. And then the assertion that the female sex is descended from Pandora. And we already learned about the incorrect translation from jar to box. And... um so that whole image of the ghostly shapes coming out of the jar, disease, poverty, sadness, misery, death, and if that's not enough, all the evil in the world and hope. I really find it interesting about hope being in the bottom 
of the box and that being a negative. Such an interesting meditation on hope. Because I know that I've stayed in situations longer than what was healthy or good for me because I kept having hope that it would be different. Interesting. Okay, so now Karen talked about the parallel between Eve and Pandora. That was great. And uh, I just want to say, as a defender for both Pandora and Eve, was it clearly stated to either of these women that life as you know it will end if you eat from the tree of knowledge or open the jar? No, I don't think so. I bet if it was explained, which men never want to explain, they always just want to be followed without question, well, I'm on a soapbox, let's get off it. I'm just saying curiosity might have been smashed. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you'd like to support us, do it! I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you are so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers. And give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms. <laughs>